This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and on other platforms and connects them to films from days gone by that you may or may not have seen and should probably check out. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts reporter here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald. Hi, my name is Karsten Knox, and I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. And today we're looking at a master filmmaker and screenwriter who has been going strong since the early 70s and is back in theaters at the height of his powers with a new film called First Reformed. And we're talking, of course, about the man behind films like Taxi Driver and Mishima and Cat People and Writing Raging Bull and American Gigolo. That is Paul Schrader. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast. A Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Paul Schrader is somebody I never thought we'd talk about because he's kind of been out in the wilderness for a while. I mean, he has this great career behind him and has done terrific work. I think we might have mentioned him when we talked about Martin Scorsese, given all the times that they have collaborated. But he is one of those guys who just kind of, in his more recent career, he certainly hasn't stopped working, but his films have been largely ignored or you know, barely opened, or worse, have been trashed by the critics. We want to talk about uh, the canyons, which I think you saw. I did not see. I did. Well, I, I, I took one for the team and watched the canyons. Okay, yes. I, I can't wait to hear what you thought of the canyons uh, from 2013. Uh, but Schrader is a one of those writers who has a very masculine perspective, but he, he his characters tend to be very restless, often unhinged loners grappling with existential issues, faith, and guilt. And uh, he has a gift of telling stories set in working class America with, you know, down, down to earth, salty the earth characters. Uh, and I really like his storytelling style, the way he has a sense of grit and authenticity, which is missing from a lot of filmmakers works these days and screenwriters. And I, I also like that he his sort of indie aesthetic when he directs. He also is, you know, he does screenwriting. He sometimes directs his own f- screenplays, but he sometimes writes for other people as well, and occasionally he's directed films like Cat People where he didn't write it. So he does a lot of different stuff, and now he's back with First Reformed, which is a real counter-programming for summer summer cinema. (laughs) No kidding. It is really different. I mean, not only because of its topic subject matter, but because it's set right in the winter. Um, And it's a, what a thrill to see a great Paul Schrader picture again. I mean, this is one that is getting a lot of attention and a lot of critical approbation. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it's it's about a character. It's right in his ballpark. It's a um, uh, Ethan Hawke plays the lead. Um, Reverend Ernst Toller of the First Reformed Church, somewhere in Upper New York State. This church is a 250-year-old tourist attraction without much of a congregation. And Toller is a former army chaplain, having lost his son to war, and then his marriage to the grief that followed the son's death. He's also self-medicating a chronic stomach ailment with alcohol. Now, he is approached by a pregnant woman amongst his slight flock, a Mary, played by Amanda Seyfried, who asks him to speak to her husband, Michael, played by Philip Ettinger, an actor I didn't know, but he kind of reminded me of a young uh, Mark Ruffalo. Uh, he's, oh, okay, yeah. he's, he's got that kind of, that mumbly kind of quality to him. <laughs> he's an eco-warrior who's been arrested one too many times, and Michael, the, the husband there, despairs for the world that his child uh, will grow up in. So uh, Toller, the the um, uh, priest, he gets wrapped up in the lives of this couple and his health begins to fail and he starts to feel a lot of guilt about having had an affair with a woman from a nearby church and then he's expected to organize the reconsecration of the First Reformed Church on its anniversary with the help of Reverend Joel Jeffers played by Cedric the Entertainer in a really great he's supporting He's terrific role. here, yeah. yeah. It, took me, it took me a little moment to, to realize who it was and, and uh, he's, he's so good. I mean, Cedric has been great in other films but I, I think this is definitely the most heavy lifting he's had to do for a role and he completely pulls it off. Oh, as yeah. This, this reverend who's enjoys a little more comfortable position and lifestyle than his, uh, Reverend Toller. And, yeah. uh, and, and he's fabulous. And it's, it's a very nicely balanced performance. It's, you know, he's, he's obviously a comedian, but, but um, you know, he can be very serious here, even though there's, you know, there's a, a, almost a jovial nature to his character when we first meet him. But then, you know, he kind of has to get down to brass tacks when, yeah. when, uh, when Ethan Hawke's reverend kind of goes off the rails a bit. Yeah, and he, I mean, he's the one of those guys who's got to be part of the public face of this, the congregation and the church, and he's got to be raising money in order to keep these these buildings and these communities together. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that means making deals with the political power brokers and corporate bucks, uh, including money from big polluters. And that becomes a big subplot here is is the sort of guilt that uh, Ethan Hawke's character feels, uh, just trying to have, having an an environmental conscience and then not seeing the church stand up for those issues, you know, and, and it's a, yeah, it's, it's a really strong film. It's got a lot of interesting things to say. It's shot in, um, I'm not hundred percent sure. Is it three by four, the ratio that it's, it's yeah, I I guess it's close to Academy ratio as they call it. Um, which is an issue I've been dealing with lately in my battles with the cable company to get Turner Classic Movies image restored uh, and and trying to explain Academy Ratio that old films were shot kind of square looking before they went widescreen. Um, and uh, and it's interesting. A couple of other films have, have done this. Uh, I remember, um, what was it, Son of Saul, I yeah, think, was, that's was, exactly was shot right. the same way. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and oddly enough, uh, Son of Saul kind of has one of the same major influences as First Reformed, and that's uh, French filmmaker uh, Robert Bresson, and um, or Bresson rather, and uh, it 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 gives the whole thing kind of a more claustrophobic. I mean, I mean, it's a classic film look, but it also makes things a little more claustrophobic. You focus more on the character, yeah. Um, 
and Sh- and Schrader is is framing his characters in such a way. There's a lot yes. of medium shots and then tight close-ups, and and it just kind of flips back and forth between these sort of framing. Uh, and it's it at first feels sort of artificial, and it's one of those things that once you watch the film for 20 minutes, you completely forget about. It's like you just get absorbed into it. Oh, for sure. I, and just in, in my brain, I was thinking it's also kind of the format that old religious icons were painted in. I don't know if that's just me thinking that or if that's actually part of the uh, the fabric of the film, but it wouldn't surprise me. No, not at all. Schrader is full of thematic layers in his work and very much so in first form. Yeah, I really like this film. I, I, I liked how it's uh, you know, it presents another one of his flawed, damaged characters, and Ethan Hawke has done a really great job in his career to to playing bruised men, uh, and he's well cast here. And uh, but the film is very, it's pretty pretty strident in its politics. Like you, you don't get, I mean, I definitely get a sense of where he's standing uh, in terms of the screenwriter's perspective on these issues. Uh, it's critical of our sort of all-consuming, all-destroying way of life and how we're treating the planet. Um, but, you know, it, it keeps it personal. So it's not like there's not a didactic kind of like, you know, heavy-handedness about it. You just, it's because it, it's really, the, t- the story is told through the eyes and the life of this man who is who is at his ragged edge. Like he has, he's gone through a lot and he's just, he just doesn't see a positive future. And, and he is, he's kind of, it's almost like he's infected by having spoken to this man, this eco warrior and that, that man's uh, legacy, a challenge, uh, you know, keeps him, pushes him in this direction. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing performance by Hawk. Uh, you know, who's an actor that I sort of rebound like off and on over the years. I find that, uh, some things I, I find him very effective in, and other things kind of leave me cold. And and uh, I find, but I, but but I find that in his later years, he's becoming more interesting. Oh, absolutely! A, as an actor, maybe not wow. so much in something like The Purge, but uh, geez, I didn't even realize he was in that. <laughs> or was it The Purge too? I don't know. It was one of those Purge movies. Uh-huh. But uh, but that that time travel film from Australia, the name of which is oh, The Daybreakers. Uh, no, the time travel one. Daybreakers was the vampire one. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and now I can't not. It's like absolution or something. I don't know. That was just off the top of my head. Pre- predestination. Predestination. There we yep. go. He's yep. terrific in that film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and here, this is a, a kind of a searing, uh, tightly coiled performance, which he is he is very good at. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, as, as he sort of takes the film to this conclusion, that's very Schraderian, if you want to go there, because you know, how many of these Paul Schrader films that we've watched have like a lone character? Who's uh, beset on all sides, bracing for a big uh, uh, confrontational finale, from taxi driver to light sleeper to you know dog eat dog uh, to you know I, I mean those are some of the more recent ones, bringing out the dead uh, uh, and Mosquito Coast even you know it, it, it's it's a recurring theme and totally and and here uh, you know he sets us up for something similar and then kind of subverts those expectations in in how things actually go down. At, in this film, I don't want to say too much about how it ends, and, and the ending isn't perfect. But um, if you if you know Paul Schrader films, you expect it to go a certain way, and, and maybe it doesn't necessarily go there, um, or at least you know there, there's kind of a there is a climax of sorts, but it's not the one you're expecting. And uh, I find that all works uh, very well in the way this film just slowly ratchets up the tension when you don't know necessarily what the characters are thinking all the time or. You know what? What is Amanda Seyfried really after? And, yeah. You know how far do you think? Uh, uh, 
you know, Father Toller is, is prepared to go and how self-destructive is he really, um, given that that's also kind of a sin and that's what he's wrestling with. Uh, so it, the, the film does manage to have some surprises and, and, uh, and of course the focus on character is, uh, is a Schrader, uh, strength that, that, that really comes to the fore here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've read a few pieces about the film that, uh, that bring out uh, comparisons to uh, well, Bresson is is the obvious one because he made a film called Diary of a Country Priest that uh, clearly was a major inspiration on this film. But I was also thinking of, of some of those uh, mid '60s Ingmar Bergman films. Uh, Winter Light is a big one where there's a a priest who has a, has a crisis of conscience. But uh, the, the, there's other examples in that filmography that really kind of line up with what's happening here as well. Yeah, I uh, I wonder about that ending, and I don't think he stuck the landing, so to speak, no. for the ending. I I, I kind of I appreciated what he was going for. Like there is a re- without again without spoiling, there is a redemption here. Uh, but I didn't. I wasn't sure if I quite believed either the sort of rage that the lead character has that forces him to um, to towards a certain destination. <laughs> and I wasn't sure there's two characters that connect in a special way towards the end. I didn't quite, wasn't quite sure that that's where that seemed likely. Um, maybe, and that could have spoke just to chemistry between actors, you know? Uh, but I, at the same time, I, I liked that. I, I, I liked it better than I think what the other, uh, the alternative ending. And there was a definite alternative there <laughs> yes. that they chose not to go with. And I, I think I, I liked it okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's funny that it's, it's uh, Schrader is not a, a filmmaker or storyteller who's particularly interested in um, happy endings. And the film that this, uh, this really reminded me of, and we spoke about it, um, or I spoke about it recently, actually, uh, is uh, in a whole separate context, but I, David Cronenberg's Stephen King adaptation, Dead Zone, with its tragic, well-meaning hero turned kind of a precognitive who embraces <laughs> violence for the greater good of the planet. Uh, so that, yeah, and also just that wintry vibe, you know, that everything being kind of gray. We certainly, you know, recognize that in Canada, recognize that kind of that kind of light, and it's a big part of this film. Yeah, maybe that's another nod to winter light. I'm not, <laughs> not sure, but uh, th- yeah, this, I'm definitely familiar with upstate New York. In uh, this was filmed outside of Albany, and uh, I'm familiar with that area at that time of year, having gone to a film fest in Syracuse uh, every March for for several years. And it's uh, it it can be a bleak and desolate time up in that part of the state. Um, you know, when there's a lot of space between towns and and uh, you know a lot of history butting up against uh, kind of an industrial wasteland. And, and that's clearly what we see here. And uh, we should mention that, yeah, the industrial uh, the industrial undertones of this film are, are, are fairly profound as well when we're trying to think of like, like you know, is it a greater, you know, the, the, for years religion was telling people to go forth and be fruitful and multiply. And then this film asked the question is like, well, you know, but is that really what's best for the planet and which is God's creation? And, and, uh, you know, so you get into this theological Mobius strip basically uh, through the course of the film. And that's kind of this treadmill that, uh, Toller is on throughout the film. And, and, uh, you know, and, and, and Hawk does a great job of spinning this issue over and over in his mind as he kind of, uh, drinks tries to drink himself into oblivion. Yeah, yeah, and he he does. There's a lot of voiceover, and, and usually that's the kind of thing I find really a crutch for a screenwriter. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I just I I appreciated the 
the the view into the character's mind that that uh, gave us. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, and yeah, I, I also appreciated those locations where you've got all this detritus and and wrecked. Like there's a uh, there is a scene that takes place uh, on sort of a docklands that's clearly not well taken care of, and it's bleak and grim. Uh, and <laughs> yes. it's uh, yeah. But I, this, you know, I wanted to say before people feel like who are looking for their popcorn, you know, films for the summer uh, are scared away by the intensity of this. This isn't didn't feel like homework at any point. Like I really liked being in this film. I really liked seeing where it would go. So I I would say that don't be scared off just because it's not you know Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Yeah, I, I went into this really, uh, you know, with a lot of expectations because Schrader's been kind of hit or miss lately. But here he's dealing with some of his favorite themes and uh, a really talented cast. Uh, there's uh, a woman. Now, here's where I got maybe a little confused. And maybe it was explained. And th- there's a woman who's kind of always fawning over Toller and, and trying to, you know, always concerned about him. And she... She's like the youth minister at the big church. Um, and I wasn't sure if that was meant to be his ex-wife or just... A, I, I, think, I think he, that was the one who, with whom he had an affair at Oh, some point. okay. And I think he felt some guilt about that. It was a little vague. Well, they, yeah, they definitely but. did have... the Yes, you're, I think you were right, because he's, he, they talk about the fact that they did have some sort of relationship and it was brief and... Yeah, but I, I've seen some reviews actually refer to her as his ex-wife, and I think, and I, and I that's where I, the confusion set in. I'm like, I don't think they were married. I think she has a thing for him, and he just feels guilty about not being able to return it. And eventually, you know, he kind of he blows up at her, and uh, you know, you feel kind of bad. And she's an interesting character too, because she's dealing with a whole lot of stuff. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's nice to see a Schrader film also that has some interesting and strong female characters, because that's not always his strong suit, um, you know, in, in some of the other films that we've seen. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's good to have that kind of balance here. But uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the turmoil and that, that comes out in, in, the, in the voiceover is certainly uh, interesting that it almost feels like another character in a way when he's writing in his diary and, and uh, giving us the, kind of the thoughts straight from his head. Uh, you're right about the voiceover. It can be a crutch. It's often done after the fact to kind of patch up holes in the story and so on and to, to, to kind of make up for stuff that, they, that didn't happen on camera and so on. But, uh, you know, one of Schrader's early works was a, was a book on film noir. And so, you know, if anybody has watched enough films with, uh, with narration, you know, brooding, heavy, uh, you know, uh, intoning kind of uh, voiceovers. Uh, he, he's he's been an expert from day one, so I think he's got every right to use that technique here. Paul Schrader came out of the gate pretty strong with his uh, first produced screenplay, The Yakuza, in 1974. It was a collaboration with another giant of screenwriting, Robert Town, and uh, I'm not sure how much uh, either contributed. There's some some of these screenplays. You're not always 100 percent sure who did the bulk of the work or you know, how shared the responsibilities were, but uh, the story was a strong one, directed by Sidney Pollack, you know, one of the great 70s Hollywood directors of of hard-hitting and sometimes socially conscious films. And uh, this was really, uh, you know, Schrader in his his wheelhouse, if you will, um, with a a film noirish story, but set in Japan, um, a country that he's also been fascinated with, and and as we'll see in some of his later films. as, uh, as Robert Mitchum goes back to Japan to help a friend whose daughter has been kidnapped. And uh, so we have, uh, 
you know, we have Robert Mitchum and uh, also the great Ken Takakura, who's a big Japanese star of the 1970s, often playing detectives and men of action. And uh, it was not a hit uh, at the time. It was not a huge hit uh, film, but it's one of those ones that kind of lives on uh, and has gained more appreciation as years go by. And, you know, partly because Schrader's become better known over the years, um, and this being, you know, his first produced screenplay. And uh, and, and also because Robert Mitchum, return, you know, endures as a cult uh, figure that maybe he wasn't at the time this film came out. You know, at the time he would have been more of like a fading Hollywood star more than... Um, you know, the, the ultimate icon of Hollywood toughness, at least in the eyes of the, the general public. Uh, and it's, it's really worth tracking down, especially if you can see it, uh, a good copy in Panavision. I remember years ago watching it for the first time on VHS, you know, just wanting to see all the Robert Mitchum films I could get my hands on. And this one really, really suffered. Um, you know, Pollock is a director who does like to work in, in a good widescreen format, especially in those 70s films. And, uh, you know, the Japanese setting comes across really well, and there, there's some, some pretty good action, too. Robert Mitchum uh, does pretty well for himself, uh, even though it's kind of later in his career. Yeah, it is not a bad film. It, it is. Uh, I, I it was fun rewatching it. Um, you know, it's a complicated thriller. It, it, complicated in a way that I that does make me think of Robert Town because he he liked those kinds of gritty, uh, complex stories. And uh, it's a gangster film, uh, and it's about honor and it's about uh, friendship and obligation. And uh, and it, it tries to get to the heart of some of those traditional values from Japanese culture. And I mean, it's very much spoke seen through the the Western lens, but I. I think it's it's fairly respectful and uh, and thoughtful and I uh, I you know and as you say Pollock is a very uh, terrific filmmaker uh, and I I really enjoyed sort of where this story went and it, it was full of surprises and twists that I did not see coming and there are some pretty awesome action sequences too uh, uh, actual samurai sword um, you know uh, sequences that uh, that are really quite impressive. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. It very masculine, lots all about brotherhood and, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. And, and then from there, um, Schrader went on to do, well, he went on to work with Scorsese and do Taxi Driver, a film I think most people know. And I, I feel like the Taxi Driver sort of template is the thing that, that is most people think about Schrader's work, like that guy, the, uh, the Robert De Niro character is very much that like, you know, a nocturnal, alone, lonely, somehow uh, very, very struggling with themselves towards some, some, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, some sort of uh, terrible fate uh, awaiting in the last (laughs) act, you know? Um, I really, uh, I really, obviously that's, that's one I've never seen. And, you know, speaking of of this period, I've actually never seen Obsession, the uh, film he wrote for Brian De Palma. So I can't speak to that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, these are, and then he went on to do Rolling Thunder, which, uh, as sort of an exploitation classic that Tarantino loves. It's a pretty uh, an amazing period. Yeah, Obsession's an interesting film because it's basically a rewrite of Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's uh, it's and it's not very it's not overly subtle in the way that, that it just it's basically takes the the idea of a guy who's obsessed with a lost love and and uh, and kind of finds her double. Um, you know, I don't know if it's completely literal in that in the, the way that the twist in Vertigo happens, but uh, it's been a few years since I've seen Obsession, but it it definitely is uh, one of De Palma's more naked Hitchcockian uh, 
uh, nods, including using the same composer as Vertigo, right. Bernard, Bernard Herrmann. I've got the score on LP. It's a terrific score. It's a, it's, it's a lot more lush and romantic than Vertigo's kind of nervous and edgy kind of score. But there's still that kind of that Bernard, Bernard Herrmann uh, kind of feel to it. I, same with Taxi Driver, which actually also has a Herrmann score. Right. Um, in fact, I think that was his very last uh, full score for a motion picture. Um, but uh, but you can see uh, you know Schrader once again wearing those uh, influences on his sleeve earlier on. He gets a little bit better at, at hiding them as as we go along. But as you can see from uh, from First Reformed, you know his latest film uh, as a director and writer, that uh, you know that he's still you know not afraid to make those kind of obvious nods like the Yakuza. Uh, you know, in, at the time it came out in 1974, that was kind of a world that people in North America weren't really that used to seeing in films. However, it, in a way, it's kind of a nod to uh, an American film shot in Japan in the late 50s, House of Bamboo by Samuel Fuller, where uh, American intelligence agents are kind of cracking down on black market and the Yakuza in post-war Japan. And, and so there's a similar element there, but uh, I think the Yakuza is a little more fully realized in terms of portraying that world, you know, and having a little bit more knowledge about uh, what what happens there. And uh, as far as uh, um, Rolling Thunder goes, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a similar revenge tale like Taxi Driver, but a lot pulpier. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not quite as operatic as, as what... Uh, what Scorsese portrays in his film, uh, but it's you know there's clearly similarities. He's a um, William Devane plays a Vietnam vet who's uh, released uh, from uh, from being a POW along with his buddy, um, who was his buddy in Capti Captivity, played by Tommy Lee Jones. So we get a very very young Tommy Lee Jones in a, in a terrific part, um, and uh, you know we kind of see how both of these guys. You know, have basically been through hell in a Vietnam uh, prisoner of war camp, and don't quite know how to function in uh, in uh, regular society. Now, now, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver is a Vietnam vet, but you know, even he didn't go through the, the tortures that that these guys in Rolling Thunder went through. And uh, you know, basically, Willem Devane, some 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 hoods from the, the from across the border, and, and well, it's a mix of sort of Tex-Mex hoodlums and guys from across the border because it's set in sort of Texas border towns uh, kill his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife and also his son in a, in a sort of uh, bungled robbery and he basically spends the rest of the, the movie tracking them down. Uh, it's it's pretty straightforward and, and Schrader kind of left the project at some point. Um, I, think they, I think they wanted something a little more prosaic and not quite as uh, heavy on the philosophical underpinnings that uh, that he wanted. And I think his screenplay was probably a lot more bleak than what we ultimately get with Rolling Thunder. So it's not the ultimate Paul Schrader revenge movie, but uh, it's certainly the story is his and uh, you know, those elements are still there. Yeah. It, I like Devane in this. this is maybe one of the only times I've seen him in a, <laughs> yeah. in a leading part, you know, yeah. he's always kind of the sleazy bad guy in some other picture. Yeah. And uh, he's not playing a Kennedy. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I, my, I always think about him in Marathon Man, um, yeah. probably the role that I think about him the most. But he's really good here. I was so impressed with how just like he's able to to convey the sort of strong silent type, but he is able to show show the kind of torture that's going on underneath the surface in a, in a really interesting way. And the, the film it actually reminded me a lot of is The Wild Bunch. Um, there is something about him being 
out of place and out of time, his characters, and, and uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones as well. Like they're, they are unable to be part of the current world. They're just stuck in their, in their, the horror that they've been through. And, uh, you know, and they're going to change the current world to fit their horror at some point, yes, you know, exactly. and, and hopefully find some kind of redemption along the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a really strong, interesting film. And uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot, having not seen it before. Um, now, at this point, Schrader went on to start directing films, and these are ones I haven't seen. I, I went out looking for them, but I didn't have much luck. Uh, Blue Collar, uh, Hardcore, both uh, 78 and 79, and then American Gigolo, which kind of turned, uh, I guess, Richard Gere into a star. I know he had been in other things previous to that, but American Gigolo was a pretty big deal. And uh, yeah, these are these are films that are, are very much well-regarded now, uh, and I am sad to say I haven't, haven't had a chance to see them. Uh, well, Blue Collar is is interesting in that it's it's kind of a heist movie, and it's got this great cast with with uh, Harvey Keitel and uh, Yafet Koto, um, and I think Richard Pryor's in it. Too, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I have a VHS copy, so it, you can tell I haven't watched it in a long time. But uh, the, you know, they they're um, some factory workers who have been ripped off, feel like they've been ripped off by their union, and decide to to get some payback there, which is a, a bit of a uh, a reactionary kind of stance, I guess, but but it, it, it's kind of put into a, a film noir kind of context, and which I guess makes sense if you go back to films like uh, On the Waterfront and so on, which is clearly what Trader is drawing on. And uh, and hardcore is pretty intense. George C. Scott plays a man who whose daughter has disappeared into the world of, of uh, pornographic films and uh, possibly even snuff films, and he goes on her trail uh, trying to find out what happened to her, and uh, and it's 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 pretty heartbreaking and, and Scott gives a, an amazing performance, but because the, I think because of the material is so unseemly that a lot of people kind of stayed away from it. Cause it is, you know, and, and, and weirdly the film is sort of remade as eight millimeter with, uh, Oh yeah. Sure. With uh, Nicholas Cage, I think another fixture in later Paul Schrader movies. Um, uh, but, but hardcore was kind of there first and, uh, it almost feels like an extension of taxi driver when you consider like Robert De Niro trying to save, uh, um, Jodie Foster's, uh, you know, teenage prostitute character, uh, Paul uh, George C. Scott's on a similar kind of miss- mission in Hardcore, and it's uh, it's it's pretty heartrending what he goes through. Uh, and American Gigolo uh, certainly is, is is this kind of glossy uh, look to it that um, that uh, he he sort of uh, Schrader kind of poses it as almost like a trilogy between Taxi Driver, American Gigolo, and Light Sleeper. Um, which he jokes was uh, would have been called drug dealer, but who would go to see that <laughs> film? Um, right. But uh, but uh, you know, American Gigolo really captures the time. You know that that kind of end of the disco era and 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 a lot of you know just uh, kind of the the drug using empty glamour of uh, of high society, which uh, you know which he obviously had a glimpse at, having had that you know this very quick rush of success. Through through some of these films, um, and, and kind of put that into the eyes of of this uh, male prostitute played by Richard Gere. Um, you're right; he had been in some other things. Uh, Days of Heaven is the obvious uh, sure. career success he'd had up to that point. Not a film which not a lot of people saw at the time it came out, but uh, obviously that was a Paramount film, and American Gigolo is a Paramount film. So there was uh, obviously had some influence uh, there in getting cast, and it, it is a remarkable performance. Um, you know this kind of uh, 
downward slide towards an inevitable fate uh, theme is there as well, uh, even though he's not necessarily a man of violence, as we've seen in some of the other films. Uh, you know, Gear, his character does take an interesting trajectory through this glossy and seemingly empty world, um, which is something that uh, the Canyons also tries to reflect, not nearly as successfully. <laughs> um, and th there's other there's evidence of other. Uh, other variations on this theme throughout the filmography as well. Right, right. So now uh, Paul Schrader's first film as a director that he didn't write was Cat People. Now, you and I watched that together from yeah. 1982, uh, the remake of a 1942 RKO picture. And this is actually, I mean, it, it's... It's very stylish and it's very eighties. Some of the yes. some of the, the production <laughs> values just feel like like painfully, obviously eighties. Uh, but it's a it's a kind of a psychosexual horror and it's pretty peculiar, not but not un, without entertainment value. It's just it's just uh, yeah, it's it, Malcolm McDowell and Nastasia Kinski, our brother and sister, who are se who were separated when their children are meeting for the first time as adults in New Orleans, and the vibe between them is totally creepy. Uh, <laughs> and then she meets local zoologist John Hurd, Annette O'Toole, and Ed Begley Jr. and gets a job at the local zoo because she has some kind of affinity for for animals, particularly big cats. Uh, and they've just captured a black panther, but is the panther actually a transformed McDowell? Uh, you know, and this is a <laughs> film that starts like set sometimes in the distant past with a with a community of people who are sacrificing uh geez i don't even know what's going on but there's some affinity between them and black uh leopards or black panthers and uh th it's the kind of thing that is taken so seriously that that uh you know, it risks being a completely campy goof fest, uh, but it kind of works, you know, and, and it helps that there's the Giorgio Moroder th synth soundtrack. Um, Kinski is obviously very attractive and she's an attractive screen presence, though she doesn't really have a lot of range as an actor. She's, she's, you know, it's, she spends a great part of the film in the all together. And that's, again, that's part of the eighties thing. Um, and I really like the locations around new Orleans. It's, it's shot really with a lot of uh, care. Um, I don't really know whether it's one I would necessarily recommend, but it's, it's certainly a time capsule of its period. Oh, I'd certainly recommend it as, as well as certainly as a time capsule, but, but uh, I think it's interesting as an example of a remake that, uh, and I, we should point out it is a remake of, uh, a film uh, from the 1940s from the uh, Val Luton team or unit at uh, RKO Pictures where they were uh, they had the mission of cranking out a series of very low budget films but that were made by real artisans like uh, like Jacques Tourneur who uh, directed Cat People uh, Robert Wise who of course became one of the most uh, successful Hollywood directors in almost every genre from uh, uh, <laughs> from uh, uh, the day the earth stood still to the sound of music. Uh, just the, the guy could handle anything, the, the West, you know, West Side Story. Um, you know, some of his films are real, you know, actual fine works of art. But uh, but he got his early start on some of these low-budget horror films like The Body Snatchers and that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, Schrader has a love of classic film, so it, I imagine that he was literally chomping at the bit to be able to, to take this and update it. And... Uh, I think it does it pretty well. There are some scenes that completely mirror famous scenes in the original Cat People. There's a there's a scare involving a trolley car that comes straight from a a bus scare uh, involving a bus uh, in um, in the original. There's a scene in the swimming pool because there's one in the original version. And I think it, it's almost like 
it almost feels like, oh, we have to have a scene in the swimming pool, just like the original version. And they come pretty late in the film, you know, when, you, when you're not really expecting to have a direct copy of scenes um, from the original film, because this goes so far afield of, of the, the classic uh, for, film from the 40s that you start to not think about it as a remake at some point, because there really isn't a whole lot of uh, attention paid to incest and naked wanderings and, and the gruesome uh, violence that, uh, that the remake gets to, uh, gets to revel in. But I, you know, I think it does have a kind of weird sense of fun about it. It knows how outlandish this premise is and uh, just decides to kind of go for it. And uh, you know, and, you, and it's grounded. You've, you've got some some pretty realistic uh, performances by John Hurd, and uh, and Annette O'Toole is, is is fine in this as well. Um, but uh, yeah, don't don't expect anything like super realistic from a film called Cat People. I, I think it, I think maybe uh, Schrader wanted to do something that would prove that horror was alive and well in the age of uh, Friday the Thirteenth and that sort of thing. And and uh, you know I. I guess it's it's successful at that. I, I think it probably stands head and shoulders above some of the other horror films that were coming out at the time, and uh, and there's a there's a great Blu-ray of it out there from Shout Factory, I believe. Uh, if you really want to get into this film and see it at its best, um, but it it is uh, it is from a, apparently from a script by uh, uh, Alan Ormsby, who is a name that may not be familiar to you, but he's a guy who uh, got his start working with Bob Clark on films like Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and uh, and Death Dream, which is a, actually a pretty good horror film from the 70s about a, a Vietnam vet who comes home from the war who may not be exactly what he seems. Uh, and uh, and he also, uh, I think, wrote uh, the second Porky sequel. <laughs> you know, but, but he's mostly tied to Bob Clark. So this is obviously like a script that he did that kind of just sat around and for a while because uh, uh, according to a couple different sources, Schrader did a rewrite of some sort on it. So, but it's hard to imagine him not sort of doing a rewrite on any script that, that he's working with. But uh, I'm guessing it was probably fairly substantial in this case. So The Mosquito Coast wasn't a film, I'd actually forgotten that Paul Schrader had worked on this because it's a Peter Weir film who is his own, you know, auteur filmmaker. And it's from a Paul Thoreau book that I remember reading uh, as a teenager and really liked. And then when The Mosquito Coast came out, I was so impressed with it. Harrison Ford, I think, I still think it's one of his greatest oh, roles. Oh, me too, for sure. Ali Fox. I mean, he's he's playing a character who's so passionate and so charismatic that, especially in the beginning of the film, you can't help but be, get drawn in by his intensity. And then, you know, he basically turns into the villain of the piece. As he goes along, he becomes more and more outrageous and more unpredictable and more aggressive and unpleasant, especially to his family. Uh, that you, it's it's a hell of a performance, and you know if anyone who who says oh Harrison Ford can only do one kind of guy, watch this because this is unlike anything else he's done. Um, the basic story is about a man who hates consumerism. He thinks America is rotten. Uh, his politics are both kind of right-wing and left-wing in some weird ways, but he's definitely an individualist. He takes his family, including wife Helen Mirren and son uh, River Phoenix, to Central America, and they have other kids as well. Uh, and uh, he becomes the mayor of a town up a river. It's really just a collection of shacks, really, and he <laughs> creates a giant ice machine there in the jungle which he says is civilization. And he winds up importing the same kinds of problems that civilization back in America had, um, you know, tyranny, corruption, and pollution, and winds up 
and alienating a lot of the people around him along the way. I mean, this is really powerful stuff, and I uh, it was great to revisit it. Yeah, I can see why this story would have appealed to Schrader, and, and uh, Harrison Ford really jumps in with both feet in terms of this uh, this portrayal and, and how far he's willing to go. Uh, I suspect it, he probably wanted to get away from Han Solo and Indiana Jones at this point. I mean, the, I think that the, the last of the Star Wars films had, had uh, happened probably not too long before production on this began, and uh, I'm not sure where we are in the indie saga um, when this uh, film came out. I think he had done two, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, he had worked with Peter Weir on Witness, yes. and apparently he was shooting this film with Weir uh, when you know the Oscars happened, and uh, I think he was, I can't remember if he was up for for actor on the Oscars at that point. But um, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it is a, it's a great role and it didn't actually do that well in the, at the box office, but I, and I, I don't, I don't, even the critics weren't all that uh, uh, affectionate towards it, but I think that it's a, it's, it's really worth going to find. Um, and uh, yeah, and so Schrader worked adapting the, the, he wrote the screenplay, so he adapted the book, the, the Thoreau book. Um, now, uh, Schrader, never one to sit for long, went off and did, uh, after this, he did Light of Day, where he directed and wrote the screenplay in 1987. And uh, the, the one thing, I, before I rewatched it, the one thing I remembered about it was that it was, the title comes from a, a song written by Bruce Springsteen. And, Springsteen at the time, you know, he does this a little more often these days, but at the time you never heard Springsteen music in movies. He just would not license his songs to show up in film. So the fact that he actually wrote this song, that he didn't record himself, but he basically gave it to Joan Jett, and she recorded it, and then of course plays it in the movie, uh, was kind of a big deal. And that kind of, I think they helped, that helped market the, the movie to some degree. And it's a, it's a very sort of Springsteen-esque kind of story about a, yeah, uh, so, a, a yeah. family. It's, it's not really, a, I mean, it is based around the music scene uh, in Cleveland or outside of Cleveland, but it's really a family drama about uh, a young woman played by Jet and her brother played by Michael J. Fox and they're in a band together and um, and then and they're, they're having problems with their their mother um, and uh, and they're having problems with uh, she's played by the excellent Gina Rollins and uh, and then there's a lot of you know generational angst going on there and uh, Jones uh, uh, she has a, a young or her name is Patty in the movie she has a, a young a child a, a son that she's trying to take care of and and her brother Joe played by Fox is is much more responsible than than uh, she is but he doesn't have the same kind of rock and roll dreams she does so she's willing to sacrifice almost every Everything for her dream, and it's a yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really great great movie. I I really love the authentic sense of place. I think the casting is really good. I've never really been that much of a fan of, of Michael J. Fox as a dramatic actor, but he's pretty good here. And I thought Joan really held her own. I mean, she gets to perform on stage a lot, and she's great there. But she's also good with the smaller scenes as well. Yeah, I had actually not seen uh, Light of Day prior to uh, prior to uh, getting ready for this uh, episode, and. Uh, you know, once I uh, realized it was kind of in the run of stuff we'd be looking at, I actually got kind of excited because I had actually recently watched just the final scene where we, we see them play the song um, and uh, realizing, oh, this is a pretty unexpectedly good song considering it's Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett. I'm not, I, I love Joan Jett and The Runaways and and, uh, the, um, and the Blackhearts and so on. But, uh, you know, I wasn't sure, eh, brother-sister drama, but it's really well done. Uh and it's you know it is a little bit of relic of its time. Uh, you know, Joan Jett's character Patty takes a foray into the world of hair metal, which is kind <laughs> yeah. of uh, 
with a band called the Huns, H-U-N-Z, which is <laughs> kind of fun to watch. Um, uh, and uh, but but the band itself, the the band that she and her brother have, the the Barbusters, not the greatest name, but. But they, you know, they're an authentic rock and roll band. And Michael McKean from Spinal Tap yeah, is their the bass, bass player. player. Yeah, yeah. Played this character named Boo. Which is funny. And then at some point he winds up in a lounge band when the Ballbusters goes on a hiatus, as you will. Um, but uh, but I really enjoyed it. I thought there was good chemistry between uh, Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett. Uh, Joan Jett, is, you know, as, as an actor, is surprisingly good. Um, here, you kind of wish maybe she'd done more acting. I think she's in the movie Foxes. I, I can't remember if that with Jodie Foster. I'm not 100 percent sure of that, but I seem to have that recollection. And um, and it's you know it, it has that gritty feel of Cleveland what, that we return to uh, in a Doggy Dog for better or for worse. But uh, you know I, I like the, I like the look of it, the feel of it. It it uh, it doesn't really feel false in any way along the line. You know it's 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 certainly uh, written from the perspective of, of those musicians that, you know, just don't get ahead uh, the way they'd like to. And, you know, watching others have a little more success than, than they've had, you know, which is a, a pretty genuine sort of feeling that we've seen in other sort of musical biopics and so on. But, but here I, I like the, uh, I, I like the relationship and, and also uh, I, I like the, the parents played by Gina Rollins and Jason Miller from the exorcist. Um, oh, right. I thought he looked familiar. Plays, plays the kind of the father who's kind of given up on, <laughs> trying to trying to uh, uh, achieve any peace in his in his household, uh, and Gina Rollins as as the mom who's who's religious and kind of overbearing but means well, um, gives a terrific performance. Uh, you know, especially later in the film when uh, when things kind of take a turn. Uh, so it's a you know it was a real surprise for me how much I enjoyed this film and 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 how involved I got in it. And I'm I'm glad I finally caught up with it. Oh, very good. Very good. Well, we've got a few more on our list before we got to wrap up our chat. Uh, Paul Schrader and I wanted to make sure we fit in The Comfort of Strangers. This is a really stylish looking film, much thanks to cinematographer Dante Spinotti. Uh, an interesting work based on Ian McEwan novel, adapted by Harold Pinter for, uh, for Schrader, who is uh, uh, directing here. And uh, it's a, there's a score by Angelo Badalamenti, who uh, was kind of the cool movie composer of the 1980s and 90s, largely thanks to his work scoring David Lynch on film and on TV. And it's a very chilly film. I was kind of reminded of Don't Look Now in some oh, ways. big time. I, because of that whole, like, uh, whole uh, Venice setting and creepiness. I feel like that's intentional. I feel yeah. like we're almost walking down the sa- over the same bridges and down the same back alleys as as we've already seen in Don't Look yeah. Now. So it might make a good double bill if you're uh, planning a trip to Venice. This, yeah, This yeah. might dissuade you from going to Venice, hard to say. <laughs> we talked about Don't Look Now recently, didn't we? Yeah, we did, episodes. in our kind of movies that get under our skin. Yes. Um, now and, this, and this movie would, too. Yeah, oh, totally. Basically, it's a, a British couple, Mary and Colin, played by the never-more-fetching slash dashing Natur- Natasha Richardson and Rupert Everett. Oh, and I mean, you know, they the film goes to some length to talk about how beautiful he is, but she is really a knockout as well. Uh, now, they are on the ragged edge of their relationship, and they're really unhappy when they go to Venice, and I guess they hope that Venice will somehow stir up something, because they've been there before. They meet a fascinating but kind of a cruel man, played by Christopher Walken with a peculiar accent, and his his very sort of quiet, mousy wife, played by Helen Mirren, who is apparently Canadian, uh, playing a Canadian in the film. <laughs> I guess. Uh, I was trying know. to see if she was sticking to any kind of accent, but it was just kind of a flat... 
mid-Atlantic kind of thing, I yeah. guess. Yeah, and it and it's funny because she's playing so so quiet and reserved. I wonder whether the fact she was Canadian was kind of somehow thematic. But anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how the rest of the world sees us. Um, but uh, anyway, having met these this older couple, it reignites their passion for each other, these, this young couple. Uh, but they keep running into them again and again, and Walken is serious, cre- seriously creepy. What it yes. does, though... It allows him to do a monologue, which might be the best one in a career, where he talks. I mean, that's saying something, given the guy is notorious for his monologues. And, yes. of course, his Pulp Fiction monologue is so famous. But here he tells a story about how he met his wife and how his tr- sisters treated him. And his and basically it's about his father and his relationship with his father. And it's brilliant and brutal. And it, And he tells a story in this bar that he owns as the camera kind of travels around the room. And it is it is amazing amazing it's the film is worth seeing just for that moment uh and yeah it's not a film where a whole lot happens but uh it's mostly about mood and it is potent in in that anyway and yeah and walking is, is terrific uh and of course you don't know if you believe a word of anything he says um especially as the, the film kind of moves in these cyclical patterns and you hear him saying similar things over and over and uh you know and slowly the layers are pulled back and you realize what's really happening here and uh it you know it builds to a pretty pretty terrifying and creepy creepy climax um you know and and of course the, somehow christopher walken seems born to do pinter with his, his style of delivery and Pinter's style of writing seemed to mesh perfectly. And uh, this is a film, I, I remember hearing a lot about it when it came out and it you know, did the art, art house circuit and was gone, uh, like a lot of films uh, from that era. And uh, I, I'm glad to revisit it. And I'm glad that it, it has a good score by Angelo Badalamenti because the next film we're going to talk about does not have a good score and it, to its detriment, and that is uh, Light Sleeper, which uh, sees uh, Schrader... Uh, working with an actor that he's worked with before in, in a few different things, including uh, Last Temptation of Christ, which, of course, is directed by Scorsese, but uh, Schrader had a hand in the screenplay, and that's uh, Willem Dafoe, who plays uh, a drug dealer uh, who is clean. He's not using anymore, but he's still uh, dealing drugs for um, a kind of flighty crime boss played by Susan Sarandon. I don't even know if crime boss is the right word, but she kind of runs an, uh, almost like a boutique uh, cocaine delivery service or, or drug delivery service. Um, but she's just trying to make enough money so that she can start a cosmetics company. And uh, <laughs> and meanwhile, Defoe is trying to think about his future. He hasn't put a lot of money aside. Um, you know, he, he doesn't think he gets paid enough by uh, Sarandon for his services and uh, you know he basically roams around Manhattan in a limo um, you know on his on his running these errands and doing these deliveries and dealing with a bunch of uh, coked up douchebags while, while uh, trying to trying to figure out his own future uh, and everything kind of goes into a tailspin when he meets a, a former love of his um, Dana Delaney da- played by Dana Delaney who has mm-hmm. been clean and straight since leaving him but is just a fragile egg waiting to be cracked, as we find out. And uh, and and I, I really, I really, you didn't care for this very much, but I, I mean, it was okay. It felt like it very much replayed a lot of Schrader yes. elements, themes. Uh, I, yeah, I thought it was okay. It just wasn't. It didn't grab me. Uh, I guess I just like you know I liked uh, Defoe a lot in this picture, and I like Sarandon. She she plays kind of a. You know, they play very likable drug dealers. It's <laughs> it's 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 uh, a, an an odd conundrum for me because it's not a world that I have any love for or fantasies about. Um, 
and uh, they don't play up the glamour of what they do too, too much. You know, they don't go full on Scarface with this. But it, it is an interesting look at kind of a subculture. And the whole thing about Sarandon really wanting to get into cosmetics is is pretty funny because you wonder, like, how is that going to happen? Like, how's, you know, how is how's that business going to get off the ground? Uh, and uh, and then we get Victor Garber as a really creepy European kind of fixer type character who's very sinister and and uh at first you think he's just kind of a character but slowly realize you know and he doesn't really have to change his performance that much to go from kind of just odd to seriously uh seriously creepball but uh but it's 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 interesting to and fun to watch him kind of just make that subtle change over the course of the film uh, but but the film has this terrible soundtrack of just the chorusy guitar that seems to plague independent dramas from the late '80s and early '90s, and it, it, even to like the there's a climactic shootout scene that is still set to that exact same chorus guitar music that happens throughout the rest of the film, and it, it's come it really uh, saps the film of a lot of uh, or whatever energy it might have because it does have this kind of the movie's called light sleeper and then you know defoe kind of moves through it in this sort of uh, narcoleptic fog if you will uh and and i guess the music is supposed to highlight that but it really just kind of overemphasizes it and sucks the life out of a lot of the more dramatic scenes in the film it's worth seeing because i i really did like the performances but but there, there's a there's that also that kind of flatness that's uh that goes with the style of the, of the film, and and uh, I wouldn't call it a misfire. I feel like maybe it could have, maybe it could be remade <laughs> with a little more int- <laughs> intensity or something like that. But uh, th- there's a good film in there struggling to get out, I guess. Um, now we have to wrap up. We're just yes. about out of time. Uh, I wanted to say one of the things about I did like about Light Sleeper was Sam Rockwell and David Spade in early roles, <laughs> yes. uh, just you know, almost cameos. Um, now I'd mentioned that. Uh, that uh, Paul Schrader has gone on uh, to do. He still does regular good work. Affliction was a big hit for him, uh, an Academy Award-winning film. Uh, James Coburn won an Academy Award for that his work in that film in the late 90s. But more recently, he has not been as beloved. He did a film called Adam Resurrected in 2008 with uh, Jeff Goldblum, a really weird film, not awesome. Also Willem Dafoe in that and Ayelet Zurer. Uh, but a uh, great role for Goldblum. If you haven't seen him do real drama, this is it. Uh, but you watch The Canyons and Doggy Dog. And with what time we have left, Stephen, do you want to say much of what about these films? I mean, these are not, these aren't the beloved uh, Paul Schrader of First Reformed or some of those earlier films. Yeah, well, The, the Canyons uh, was a collaboration with Brett Easton Ellis, which should set off some alarm bells right there. You know, if, if anybody excels at portraying vapid, uncaring, and, and sometimes uninteresting people, it's Brett Easton Ellis. And obviously, uh, you know, Mary Heron did wonders with American Psycho, uh, but Paul Schrader does not necessarily do wonders here. The film got a lot of attention because uh, the producers opted to, I think it was Kickstarter, uh, to help get this film made when support at some studio kind of fell out of the bottom. And uh, it was also notable for the involvement of Lindsay Lohan. And this film was kind of going to be her return to form after uh, having a, a social life that was something of a train wreck and very much on the on, in the headlines. And the idea was that they, they'd maybe use that notoriety to good effect, but also maybe give her a platform to, to get back on her game. Uh, essentially, we look at uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan uh, is uh, is partnered up with a trust fundian douchebaggy producer 
who is trying to make a horror film, but uh, is mostly just interested in, in expanding his own ego. And uh, they they have a, a not quite an open relationship, but they're they're kind of swingers, and they invite other couples into their uh, bedroom or, and their their fancy house in Laurel Canyon. Meanwhile, uh, the ostensible star of this horror film is, is uh, actually a former boyfriend of Lohan's, and that uh, causes some friction when that uh, that attraction is uh, re-sparked. And, and, and basically the film just kind of goes in circles portraying how empty and, and meaningless uh, these uh, characters' lives are. And it's, you know, it is kind of choppy and low budget. And even if you're remotely curious, I'd say, you know, don't waste a lot of energy. <laughs> and, do- and, do- and Dog Eat Dog? Uh, and Dog Eat Dog is, uh, you know, it's, it's a crime thriller based on a novel by Eddie Bunker, the great crime novelist, former uh, prisoner, ex-con who uh has inspired a lot of different uh, filmmakers uh uh you know straight time with uh, dustin hoffman i think might be the first thing that was based on something he wrote but he's he's, he's written a lot of uh, books that have been turned into movies uh you know he's a big influence on tarantino and actually appears in reservoir dogs and uh this story is about kind of a hapless trio of of ex-cons who uh get involved in a, a kidnapping plot for one drug lord to or crime boss to, to get leverage against another crime boss. And the kidnapping goes horribly, horribly wrong. And, and we've got Nicholas Cage, Willem Dafoe, and uh, another actor whose name escapes me, but who's actually fairly appealing um, as, a, as a guy named Diesel, who's kind of like, he looks kind of dumb, but he's actually the smartest one of the bunch. Um, Diesel is Christopher Matthew Cook, no relation. Uh, <laughs> and uh, basically they're assigned to kidnap the infant child of a, of a drug lord. Things go wrong, and then the, the three of them kind of turn on each other. In fact, uh, Nicolas Cage is actually the most sensible character in the film, which is, you know, considering uh, Nicolas Cage's choices of, of in his latter career, that is saying something. There's some good stuff in here. The, the, the relationship between the three criminals and how they've kind of helped each other and what they mean to each other, that aspect of the film is, is, is pretty well def- explored. Um, but it starts off with Willem Dafoe committing a brutal murder and, and suffering no blowback for it whatsoever. And it's done very stylistically with colored filters and, and it kind of sets you up for something that maybe doesn't really happen. And it's hard to get over those initial scenes. And then the finale, in typical uh, Schrader fashion, there's a, you know, a big climactic shootout. Um, but it's it's shot in a way that doesn't entirely make sense. It, it feels like they just kind of ran out of steam, basically, and just decided to have a big shootout. And and it, it's it's kind of vague in, in in what exactly happens. You know, is something happening in the character's mind? Is this like a dream uh, of a dying man, or is it actually taking place within the realm of the story? Um, it is on Netflix. If you want to have a look at it, uh, like I say, Cage is actually pretty good here, and and and. Um, and Willem Dafoe is fairly unhinged as his uh, buddy from prison, who's fairly unpredictable and uh, also unreliable. So I, I say it's it's not a complete failure. Uh, I I was entertained by by aspects of it, but it's not a complete complete success either. And that's been Lends Me Your Ears for another episode. Uh, We're talking today about Paul Schrader and first reformed his film in cinemas. Now, hopefully when you're hearing this, still in cinemas, it's it's worth going to see. And much of his back catalog is too. Um, 
You can find us on Facebook if you're interested in uh, in reaching out to us. We're also on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And Stephen, you've got a Twitter account too. I am. You can find me at NS underscore S O And my Twitter is uh, named after my blog. It's Flaw in the Iris. I also have a Patreon account. If you'd like to send us some shekels, we would appreciate any support you care to offer. I'd like to say, uh, we actually both like to say thanks to CKDU for the uh, use of the studio facilities and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And many thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.